Hello, my name is Chris Jones. I'm a poet and I teach creative writing at Sheffield Hallow University. Welcome to the Two-Way Poetry Podcast, a bi-weekly series of programmes where I speak to poets about their own creative inspirations and practice. In each episode, I invite a writer to talk about a poem that has influenced his, her, their own writing. We discuss the work and, in return, my guest reads a poem they have written as a response, however overtly or indirectly connected to the original piece. In this show, I talk to the poet Susanna Evans about James Tate's poem, Making the Best of the Holidays, and how it played a part in the writing of her own work, A Course in Miracles from her Nine Arches Press poetry collection, Space Baby. More details about Susanna's work appears at the end of the podcast. Enjoy. I'm in my office again. Um, I've done one recording in my office already for the podcast, and I've returned. Uh, This time, I've invited Susanna Evans along to speak to me, to talk to me about two poems. The first one is by James Tate and it's called Making the Best of the Holidays. And the second poem she's going to talk about is her own poem, A Course in Miracles. Yeah. And we're going to look at the ways that the two poems possibly talk to each other and possibly don't. Mm. I mean, that's the thing about this podcast. Sometimes we find connections and sometimes we don't but it's part of the process that I'm interested in is actually talking to the poet about how they write a poem off the back of reading another poem and how the uh, influence percolates through as well Um, so thank you for coming today Susanna you are very welcome it's Uh, nice to be here yes in my hot office in a warm on a warm day (laughs) a warm warm day. day in Sheffield yeah so I mean I mean I'm intrigued by this poem that you chose, partly because I think it's it's. Well, could you say a bit about the form of the poem? Because it seems to me like it's almost like a kind of. Is it a prose poem or is it is it a poem or? It's a prose poem with line breaks. I think. Yeah. That's and I think this this whole book. So it's from the book um, "Return to the City of White Donkeys" by by James Tate, and the whole book. You could sort of call it a book of prose poems, but they. But the way they are laid out on the page is the lines are broken. They don't go to the margins, you know, they're not justified. Like they don't look like a paragraph of prose, which is that sort of slightly disarming thing that a prose poem does, doesn't it, before? Why do you think he does that? Why write prose poems and, and then? I don't, I mean, it's... It's always hard to guess why, exactly why someone does something. I think there's something very conversational about them. I think there's something about them. uh, There's often like a lot of voices in them, a lot of characters, a lot of uh, names of people, but you don't really, these people don't recur. And there's something possibly about that slightly dialogue-y style that lends itself to to the shape they're in. Um, 
that's my best guess, I think. Yeah. He's not that bothered about the last word in the, in the line, is he? Like a lot no. of poets are. No. He's not. He's deliberately sometimes ending on quite a soft syllable or quite a, an unstressed syllable. And I think there's something about that which lends itself to the content of the poems because there's a lot of the unexpected in these poems. There are a lot of little strange little twists or things that happen that you're not expecting. And um, and I think possibly if you're going out of a line not knowing what to expect, that, do, do, you, know, do you see what I mean? Yeah. It lends itself to that kind of anything could happen style yeah. of writing. I, the, the, he uses the line break as a form of surprise. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what, yeah, what I mean. Which yeah. is, um, I think it's a good tactic. Yeah. A good yeah. technique. Yes, and but and and actually I think probably a lot harder than it looks. Yeah. Yeah. I think for something so flat in a way mm. and almost sort of anti-poetic. Yeah. As a sort of, because he doesn't use imagery as such, does he? Or, you know, if we, ticked, if we have the tick box for what a poem is, yeah, yeah, you know, it's true. There's... Imagery, metaphor, simile, that's not really there, is it? You know, as far no, as I can see. No, and yeah, a metaphor and simile especially I don't think is not in this poem. I don't know. I, th there are certainly sensory bits that feel quite real, but also I think they're in the background. They're not what the poem's going for in a way. Um, I mean, it's, it's tone, isn't it? I yeah. think it's the tone of the poem. Yeah. It remi reminds me a bit of um, a short story by John Cheever called Reunion, where this, it's the first person narrator. It's about the son meeting his father for the first time in years. And he's a, uh, his father's a drunken bully, basically. Yeah. And it's that kind of dismissiveness that kind of comes through this. Yes. That kind, of, that kind of arrogance almost, really. Yeah, yeah, there is arrogance, isn't there? And I mean, it's like this person, do you know how people say nobody thinks they're a bad person? Yeah. No, like no person is there thinking, oh, well, you know, I'm so horrendous, I can't possibly enjoy my Christmas dinner. I don't know. Like, I feel like that's kind of there in this poem because this person is a nasty piece of work. Yeah. Or they certainly, they don't treat other people very well at all. And um, and we don't really know why that is. But it's, it gets to the point where it, they're so awful, it's quite funny. Mm. Yeah. It's darkly funny. Before you, before you read it, do you want to say anything about James Tate? I mean, I don't know a lot about him. I only know him possibly from reading, I think, three poems. Okay. And that's my limit. So it's from The Emergency Kit, which is the oh, yeah. Matthew Sweeney, yeah. Joe Shapcott anthology. Yes, um, absolutely. Um, but how did you come to James Tate? I got recommended this book by Caroline Bird, who mm -hmm. I was doing some, she was doing some mentoring with me, which was a very good, it was a very, very positive experience. And obviously James Tate, you know, he's her favorite poet and she oh. talks about him a lot and oh, does she that yeah. makes sense yeah and she's done a lot oh. of i saw her give a talk about james tate and i think that's really where all my information about james tate possibly comes from 
And I was at the stage when this book was recommended to me, I had had a book out. I was about to go on a residency where I was going to write a lot, hopefully. Mm. And she recommended to me as this sort of thing that would help me in the generating of a lot of poems, like that it would be quite liberating, that it would be quite um, good reading and good to, and definitely thinking about playing with the unexpected in poems and like getting lost and fight, you know, and trying to yeah let them do their own thing. And it was, and it was like, it was a really good thing to read for that purpose. And at that time, the only, I think, I'm just trying to get the fact right in my mind. I think James Tate, there's something about his father was a soldier in World War One and and never came back, but they also never found out whether he had died. He's he's a pilot, yeah. Yeah. Oh, of course. Because of this like living in not knowing and living in uncertainty. Yeah. There is a feeling often in these poems that anything could materialize happen, yeah. Mm. Um, and they, I don't know, they at various points in their lives have this leads that he might be alive. Someone saying, oh, yeah, I knew him and he's all right. Or, you know, and, yeah. and then that transpiring not to be true at all. And really, like, really interesting and mm. weird reflection in autobiographical fact that i think is reflected in some of the poems do you want to read it out i think we need to hear it yes okay for our for our, for our listeners yeah making the best of the holidays justine called on christmas day to say she was thinking of killing herself i said we're just in the middle of opening presents justine could you possibly call back later that is if you're still alive she was furious with me and called me all sorts of names, which I refused to dignify by repeating them. I hung up on her and returned to the joyful task of opening presents. Everyone seemed delighted with what they got, and that definitely included me. I placed a few more logs on the fire, and then the phone rang again. This time it was Hugh, and he had just taken all of his pills and washed them down with a quart of gin. "'Sleep it off, Hugh,' I said. "'I can barely understand you, you're slurring so badly.' Call me tomorrow, Hugh, and Merry Christmas. The roast in the oven smelled delicious. The kids were playing with their new toys. Lonnie was giving me a big Christmas kiss when the phone rang again. It was Debbie. I hate you, she said. You're the most disgusting human being on the planet. You're absolutely right, I said, and I've always been aware of this. Nonetheless, Merry Christmas, Debbie. Halfway through dinner, the phone rang again, but this time Lonnie answered it. When she came back to the table, she looked pale. Who was it? I asked. It was my mother, she said. And what did she say? I asked. She said she wasn't my mother, she said. Mm. Thank mm. you very much. It's a poem where you go, mm, I think. Yeah, that. I think I understand it even less having just read it out. Like it's, it, go, it just goes all over the place, doesn't it? It's It does. But there's this... The, I know you're saying that he is unlikable, an unlikable, presumably man, unlikable mm. man, but he seems to be loved by his wife and his children. Yeah, and he's self-aware as well, isn't he? When Debbie says, you're the most disgusting human being on the planet, he says, you're absolutely right. 
He's not in denial. No, he's not in denial. And there's and something about that is 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 kind of interesting. After all I said about if you nobody even a bad person doesn't think they're a bad person, he yeah. just seems totally at peace with the fact that he's a bad person. Yes, I mean he's in the the warm embrace of his family and yeah. at the same time he's imparting these kind of I mean the thing is also that the the aggressiveness is coming from outside of the of the, of the house, yes. isn't it? People are phoning him up. Yeah. And they and these people could have chips, multiple chips on their shoulder. We don't know. I yeah. mean that's beyond yeah, the poem. Absolutely. But I think when to two of those phone calls are a, an actual cry for help, you know, yeah. if someone's suicidal and someone's in the process of committing suicide. And no one would no one would ignore that, you yeah. think? Yeah, no, I agree. But but that's it's the opposite of what you expect happens in the poem. There's a sort of cheerfulness throughout it as well, isn't there? Like you say, there's sort yeah. of a, Yes, uh, the delicious dinner and the logs on the fire and the Because he he, men- he mentions opening presents twice, which I find interesting. It's the sort of repetition. Yeah. This is the where it comes back to the idea of writing a poem, there's things you look out for like repetition that you try and mm. Not to do, yeah, know. absolutely, you know, yeah, because it's such. A, it's not exactly a sort of highfalutin or a really interesting phrase to use, or one that's got got full of meaning. Which yeah, you might yeah, it's quite it. as a phrase. It's pretty pedestrian, it's, isn't it's it? It's mundane, and, yeah. but he uses that twice. It's uh, it's almost like he's. Um, that's, that's why it interests me. So interests me about the poem is how f- flat it is in a way, as a kind of it's almost like an anti. Mm-hmm. It's something about. Voice, isn't it? You know, um, you feel like someone could be telling you this on the bus or, you know, in a shop or something. It doesn't, it doesn't alert you to the fact that it's a poem very much. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, 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 that's it. It's almost mm. hiding the fact that it's a poem in the, in its poemness, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, there are things in there that I would say are things that you might kind of say were kind of rules that you might want to follow. So, for instance, he gets he gets phoned up three times. There's a rule of three, you know, and that's yes. kind of... Yes, yeah, that's true. That's yeah. something that, you know, you find in a lot of poems that uh, things happen three times. But it's slightly wonked or the symmetry is kind of broken by the fourth Yes, the fourth yeah. Article. Which you know. he doesn't take and sort of, well, and it just ends the poem, doesn't it? You know, there's it nothing. It does. That sort of turnaround, does it work? Because it becomes something that that's quite, we go from possibly comedy or, you know, certainly sardonic humour. Yeah. Trashy comic. To, to something which is a lot more, a lot more fraught. And what is the difference? What is the difference about that? kind of terrible phone call and all the others it's it's just something to do with it being closer to home maybe for the for the characters you know why why does that phone call why is that phone call the one that ends the poem lon is yeah made up of different material i think to to our narrator yeah definitely i think then they've got more porous experience of of the world and that they they Take more of it in and uh, kind of and internalize it, and our, yes. and our narrator is much more happier in their own 
bulletproof skin. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, the connection's stronger. It was my mother, so it's like it's some it's someone much, much closer. I don't know. It seems to be about family as well. So, so Christmas is the time when, when we, 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 you know, people see their families. Yes. Which, which has its own, you know, kind of drama to it. Yeah, it has the joy and the difficulties, doesn't it? Yeah. But in this case, I wonder whether it's, there's almost like a sort of family element to it. That, that, you know, we don't know, but it could be siblings phoning up or yes. uh, extended yeah, members of the family. Yeah, that's true. We, we don't, they, they just have names, don't they? So you get the phone call from your uncle or your, yeah. your brother who can't make it at Christmas. You know, that's how you kind of, you know, connect with them. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that could be, that could be a reading. And it's the mother, she's, she kind of finishes it all off because she, possibly she she should be there maybe or mm. you know or there might be some you know that that connection is lost isn't it between between them all they have to phone each other rather than sit in a room with each other and kind of yeah yeah that's true and there's something about christmas as well isn't there something about the special the specialness of christmas you know everybody's preparing for christmas or i don't know it's it takes up a big cultural place i yeah. think in our heads and um, for Christmas to be characterised by like these kind of fairly awful scenarios and kind of grim, you know, character judgments and decisions is well, I think it adds to the the dark humour yeah. of it. That the, the contrast yeah. is so great. You know? No, I agree. I agree. Yeah, um, I'm. I am interested in the idea of the. The awkward, the selfish, the negative narrator. Mm. I mean, and I know you chose this poem part part because of that kind of reason, really, because it shows off someone not in their best light. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you more about that in a way. Poetry has its own kind of examples of people who've written things in the past that now are kind of regarded with um, sort of ambiguity or they're, yeah. kind of, they're kind of looked on and looked in a different light. So, you know, for example, you get a narrator in a Philip Larkin poem, for instance, like in the, in the Wits and Weddings, um, yeah. who is kind of making very kind of sweeping judgmental views make on the, on the, on the wedding parties mm. he sees on the platform. Yes, yeah, yeah. You know, he caricatures them almost. Really. Yeah. So you've got, so, so you have narrators who... Yes, espouse opinions that we would regard as yeah problematic yeah how do we actually deal with those i mean you're an yeah. editor and you must yes. read poems sure where you think i mean it's interesting you, you might read a poem and say i disagree with this narrator's point of view but i think this is a good poem uh, yeah and that that definitely happens but i think there's there's the kind of wrong where it's it's not actually wrong. It's just an opinion. Yeah. And there's the kind of wrong where it hurts someone. Yeah. And um, which you, I mean, you could certainly say that about T.S. Eliot and, and anti-Semitism. Um, and I don't like that. I don't, I don't know. It's, it's just a really problematic thing because I, for example, I love the wasteland, you yeah. know, that's one of my, favorite poems but i also know that he 
Elliot wrote these other things that that are really problematic. Yeah. And I think the only thing I can do is read The Wasteland and keep both things in try just try and keep both things in my head at the same time. Just like yeah. this doesn't stop this being a good work of art, but it also doesn't stop this person having done some questionable things. I I, th- I think I mean in the case of the Tate yeah. poem, is this is this James Tate or is this a yeah. persona? Is this or is- I well, I think they're all kind of personas. This book is is full of personas and names and I don't think they come that close to being James Tate, honestly. So is there a safety net in a way underneath yeah. these poems that's saying I'm you may be, think I'm awful, but I, I'm, I'm going to be objectionable in this yeah, poem, yeah. but really it's not me. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the issues we have as poets is that people think that we are the narrators of our poems. Yes, that's a massive problem, isn't it? And, well, I think it's a problem for me. I, I'm a bit bored of it, actually. I'm a bit bored of reading poems that seem more concerned with this is true, then this is a poem. Yeah, no, I agree completely. Yeah. But I, I mean, there are lots of poets who do it. Re- I mean, Caroline Bird is one of them who yeah. do it really well, who, you know, you it doesn't need um, to be here, but it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, there's a sort of mixture of the mundane and the extraordinary in her poems that kind of yes. fit really well together, I think. Yeah. And it could be a poem about real feelings and real experiences but what happens in the poem doesn't have to be real at all and i'm definitely that's when i think about writing poem that's how i think about it as well that it is a kind of voice that you yeah yeah definitely or like you find a way into talking about something because that's something that i don't i think i've kind of made a rod for my own back but the most of the time when i write poems i write because I've got an idea. Yeah. So rather than like having a line that I'm going to follow with another line or uh, an image or something like that, it's always like, how do I write about the deep future of outer space as a poem? And then yeah. so you have to find the voice of it and you have to find the images and you have to find the shape of the poem as as well. And sometimes you can't get the idea to be the poem and that's and you have to abandon a perfectly good idea yeah yeah no I, yeah i can understand that yeah i suppose the other thing is um oh the other thing is yeah the other thing is that interests me is that actually we were writing for the people yeah so we're actually writing for an audience opening the windows opening the doors so you let in other people who actually when they read the poem find it a play well you know uh, a pleasurable experience or they find it an engaging experience yes definitely i think you can't think about that till a little bit down the line oh um because i think you can identify that a poem is not working because you're not letting people in and then you can try and do it but i think sometimes i think that's quite it's quite a complicated yeah. Thought process, like who am I letting into this and who am I and there's also this this because what is what what is a sufficient amount of letting in? Do you yeah. need to tell someone like true and tragic facts about yourself to let them in? Or 
Is it enough? I think making them laugh lets them in. I like, I'm really interested in humor and funny poems and what makes a poem funny and what makes things funny in general. So should we move on to your Yes, sure. Because for all I've said that about writing a fictionalized speaker and writing from ideas, this is sort of written from actual experiences. Well, it is written from. Well, I was going to say, I was going to ask you about Howarden. Yeah. Howarden, 2019. They say Harden. Do they? Yeah, which is embarrassing to ask for on the bus. Oh, right, there's um, a place in Leicester called, yeah. called Heather. Actually, it's called Heather. Oh, uh, yeah. That yeah, sort of I know. Place. It's not very helpful, these place names, is it? No. No. Um, but I was born in Worcester, which a lot of American people can't say. So Yeah. <laughs> so what, what ha- happens or who decides to go to Howard? Or Howard Howden. Howden? So this was part of this residency that I was doing the residency for which the book of James Tate was recommended. So I was reading a lot of James Tate and a lot of Tony Hoagland as well. So Tony it was very, Hoagland, yeah. yeah the, very, the very fine American poet. Yeah, very, a bit of uh, that Charles Simich book about the, is it the, not about, it's called The World Doesn't End. That's prose poems. We're very weird prose poems, but I love that book. And so all of this was kind of in the mix anyway. And... The residency sounds like the jolliest thing in the world. Like, oh, I'm having my tea made for me and I'm sitting in a library writing all day. And it is, like it is the best thing ever in a way. But it is also, all you're there to do is write. And the pressure of that is quite, on me anyway, is quite uh, intense. Mm. You know, I that, if I can't write today, I haven't done my job. If I can't write today, I shouldn't be here. So I was like, yeah. I have those feelings about when I am have, yeah, research lead. Mm. Yeah, exactly. I haven't researched enough things. I haven't written enough, yeah. So there's so many other things going on in our lives that we actually get space to write. Yeah. The, the pressure on us is to write. Yeah. Whereas- and decompressing from the real world takes a while, mm. I think. And so Gladstone's Library is a library of books. Some of them were owned by Gladstone, William Gladstone, who was Prime Minister four times. And it's kind of an interesting character in himself. Some of them have his little notes in the margin and things. You can find them. It's like, he didn't agree with Mary Wollstonecraft, apparently, very much. Mm. But I didn't, I don't know, that's a popular one for people to get it out. And Yeah. No way, Mary. I don't know what he wrote, (laughs) but you know. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So, so I'm in the place... I'm saying a lot about this poem, aren't I? There's a lot of preamble. I'm in this place, there's a cafe, and obviously you work and you sit on your own and your room is your own, you go to your room, you work in there. But the cafe part of it, the eating part of it, you go down like with your tray, you get your food, you sit down. And chances are, being where you are, you might end up talking to someone you don't know. You might end up sort of... And and they're also, so the nature of it is there are writers there because they do a lot for writers. There are historians there because of Gladstone history. Um, There are various clergy there. That's what I was going to... Because it's very connected to the church, which is next door to it. And 
And there are other people who, I met a book, someone who was studying book and manuscript restoration. And, you know, I met a few people who were doing sort of odd, non sequitur, interesting yeah. things. But yeah, I ended up speaking to a lot of vicars. Mm. Yeah. Do you want to read the poem? Yes. Yeah. Otherwise, I'll talk about it all day. Um, and theology types as well, like scholars and things like that. The one at this, obviously, obviously, no one in this poem is real, but the one at the beginning of this poem is is real and um, was quite a memorable person to talk to. <laughs> a Course in Miracles, Harden 2019. I've been counting the fly agarics on the library lawn and today there are 31. At lunch, the th theology scholar laughs because I'm wearing slippers. I eat a baked avocado, which I've never eaten before. I watch the ewes that brush the churchyard wall while he pronounces the Greek apocalypsis and asks me what is being revealed that might not be known otherwise. The avocado has been cooked in its skin with red onion and pepper. A visiting vicar tells me Christians are unafraid because they know they will be saved and asks if I have a faith like that. I imagine myself in the ruins of my house fashioning a fallout shelter from a blown-off door. When John ate the scroll in Revelation, it tasted both bitter and sweet and allowed him to speak prophecy. But did he wash it down with anything? The teacher of A Course in Miracles says consuming food is not essential, but a human experience we've grown used to, while polishing off the last forkfuls of a tuna jacket. Every day more toadstools rise out of the grass like cartoon thought bubbles. I have been reading about the expanse of their finely rigged root systems and how they communicate with trees. If I have faith in anything, it's the plants. When the time comes, they'll eat me inside out. Thank you very much. I've put in my notes here, there's lots of different ideas that are jostling around in this poem. Yeah. There's, there's a lot going on. There seems to be th themes that you stitch through it. Mm. And one of them is the idea of possibly, well, one of them, I suppose, is faith. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think because the book I wrote before this book, Near Future, was very apocalyptic and dystopian a lot of the people i met who were clergy or involved in the church in some way when i said oh i write about the apocalypse because that became sort of a neat little thing to say mm. without thinking about it too much even mm. and the apocalypse for someone like me who is i don't know an anxious atheist is very different to someone whose whole life is in you know, is tied up with the Bible and the ideas of apocalypse that are in there. Yeah. Because, because of course, exactly, well, that, that thing in the poem where it says, you know, Christians, like, for Christians, it's part of what will happen. It's sort of, yeah. I mean, I don't know if a beast with however many legs is going to crawl out of the sea or whatever it is, you know, it's, yeah. but, but, Broadly, there will be a second coming, there will be a kind of apocalypse. And if you have faith 
you will be saved. And that's really different to well, the eating, things I imagine. <laughs> yeah. Well, eating fly agaric, for instance, is it offers a different kind of visionary experience. Yes, yeah. That's what I was thinking, that, that, you're, that you are offering a different kind of different ideas of... Yeah, that's true. Of, I didn't, of seeing the world. I didn't eat any. <laughs> no. But their obsession um, with, but, uh, the narrator's obsession with that yeah, kind of... Yeah, yeah. But yes, absolutely, a shamanic, it's a shamanic tool, isn't it? It is. Um, eating fly garlic or, or boiling them a couple of times and eating them first, I believe, is the way to do it. But don't try that at home <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, because they... There's something in them that's yeah. There's something in them that is poisonous as well as the yeah. thing that is psychedelic. I believe so. Yeah. So you've got people ingesting, eating things. Yeah, yeah. So there's got, a lot of ingesting. There's the fly agaric and there's the baked avocado. The baked avocado. I mean, don't try that at home either. It was a re- <laughs> that was a really weird. That was a really strange I have, day. <laughs> I've had a baked avocado in a restaurant. I think okay. before. Yeah. It's just like an avocado, but hot. But then there's, there's, is, is it John eating the eating the scroll? Yeah. But that's, I, I mean, I attended a Roman Catholic secondary modern school, but we didn't do revelations. Yeah. Um, that's too could you say something a bit about John and eating his yeah. scroll? Yeah. I mean, I was inspired really by all these conversations with theologists to go and read revelation it's free on kindle um because <laughs> it's you know out of copyright or whatever um <laughs> so that's a tip um and it's i mean it's wild like all the things that happen in it but there's something i don't know if i'm going to remember this right because it was a few years ago but there's something about how he is given a scroll he's supposed to he can't read it. He's told to eat it. And then about how it tastes. It tastes bitter mm. and then it tastes sweet, which that's interesting. I mean, mm. that's, it's just kind of interesting. It's the, it's a, like the truth, maybe. I don't know. You know, the truth can be yeah. bitter to hear, but ultimately it's better to hear it, maybe. Better yeah. to have it. He doesn't wash it down with anything. That was just me being like, Tying it to the mm. kind of mealtime. Yeah, but that's kind of, it's but, yeah. a throwaway line, but also it's saying, is that enough? I think possibly, yeah. you know, is, is that enough? Do we, we, do we need more than just that? I think, I mean, the narrator seems to be questioning yes. the, their, the people who are coming at them. Because mm. yeah. if there's anyone in this poem who seems to be kind of faintly, aggressive it's the it's the vicar yeah saying you, think? you know the faith you know what, what, yes you... and does and do, yeah did ask me did ask me if i believed that the same thing and i just was like well no and you know there's nothing wrong with not believing like people i mean he must come across lots of people who don't believe the same things he does because we all do yeah but um I don't think I was being converted at that point. No, I think he was probably just yeah, curious. Yeah, curious. curious. I mean, yeah. It, that's the thing. Is, this is quite a curious, mm. inquisitive And I'm writing poem, about like the future and death and 
mortality and like all these things. So yeah, it is something to think about, isn't it? Yeah. Because if you believe in an afterlife, your view of those things is different. It would be, yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, I feel like I, I feel like we were sort of halfway through something there and we got away from it. Oh, it's the John eating the Yeah, Johnny. Yeah, that's it. But so that's what happens at the very start of Revelation to allow him to speak slash write. Well, that's... I mean, Because there's always this thing with the yeah. Bible is like, who's writing it down? Did he write it down or did he tell someone who wrote it down? I don't know. I'm. But presumably the scroll, does it have words on it or, or is it... I don't... That's an interesting kind of a metaphor for writing, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that we read other texts so that we can write ourselves. You know yeah. What? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's... I, hadn't, I had not come up with that, but that's excellent. But that seems to be one of the ways we could read that. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Yeah, definitely. That passage. Yeah. I think it... Yes, he, it has words on it, but he can only read them by eating it. Strange. So you, you've got people who are quite... um staunch in their beliefs possibly mm. or they kind of they're quite certain in their you know yeah yeah absolutely so you've got the person is are they a breatharian i was going to ask you this oh, about the, yeah. the person I the don't. teacher of a course in miracles says, cons- I mean, says consuming food is not essential yeah but a human experience we've grown used to while polishing off the last thoughtfuls of a tuna jacket yeah with that that juxtaposition i mean there's a uh, uh, at the least level, it's ironic, isn't it? You know. Yeah. At the lowest level, we could say that's an, that's an, yes. ironic, an ironic moment in the. Poem. Yeah. Well, and it was such a. I suppose I'm talking about the incidents behind the poem more than I'm talking about the poem, so I apologise for that. That's all right. But yeah, certainly. I mean, this is something a person said to me um, while eating a jacket potato. They said, "Oh, we don't need food." really, mm. as people. And, I mean, that's not your mainstream Christian belief, is it? That is something a bit unusual. Yeah. How we consume things, I guess, is interesting and why. But it's, it's denial as well, isn't it? It's yeah. almost like denial of earthly yes. pleasures, possibly. Yeah. Pleasures and needs, though, yeah. right? Like, if you, I mean, you could ask a breatharian, but I assume they're all dead, you know, um, or in McDonald's. So, yeah, I don't know. I can see how fasting is important. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But this takes it to another kind of yes. level. And fasting is, I mean, fasting's almost kind of trendy now, but it is also, it's a religious yeah. It's part of a lot of religions, isn't it? Yeah. Fasting. And yeah, maybe there is something about the experience of, of fasting that lends itself to like pi- piety, but or like devoutness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, denying yourself things. Mm. I think. The narrate is very reasonable. I mean, coming back to Tate, I don't, I mean, he's a difficult fish, yeah. the Tate narrator, but this yeah. narrator is very, kind of being very reasonable, really, with what's being kind of put upon them really, mm. throughout the poem, which sort of means the end, there's a sort, I mean, sort of how I read it, there's a sort of certainty at the end yeah. that they have, that they know that actually, that what that, you know, what they return to is the, 
biological forces of nature, you know, yeah. the kind of the things that we can't really control ourselves. Mm. It's that we are going to be eaten in the end by yeah, we'll be fungus we'll, or whatever. We'll become compost, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, does does the narrator find that quite um, comforting? I was that's exactly the word I thought. Then is comforting. It is comforting, isn't it? Don't have to go on and exist on another plane. Don't have to mm. carry around like the daily. I mean, efforts of having a brain. You can just be, you know, part of the world, which which we all are anyway. But part of the world in a way that's helpful. You know, of nutrients for something. I think it's probably think about you think about legacy sometimes with poetry, mm. don't you? But like. That legacy is a certainty. Yeah. I um, thought the, and everything else is a guess, isn't it? And the neatness of the poem is that you start with the fly garrix and you end with the kind yeah. of, like you say, the, the, the fungi, all that, you know, all the, the plants. I think that's really kind of, that's really well handled, that kind of, mm. that, that circular, circularity to the poem. Yeah. Uh, and there's lots of stuff being chucked into the poem, but you kind of, that sort of, it's the calmness of the narrator, I think, that kind of holds it all together. And there's a sort of, I suppose, the, I mean, to link it, to the, the, the narrate, the Tate narrate is very calm. I suppose. Yes, true. Under provocation, they just sort of, you know, they have, the they have answers or they have, conf they responses that kind of, they don't lose it, you know. Yeah. And I suppose that's possibly where we can draw one thin line between one, one that, that the Tate poem and your yeah, poem. That, yeah, that's true. Is this sort of, sort of solidity to the Yeah. If everybody's screaming at you down the phone and you're perfectly calm, that's kind of quite I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. I think it's the Course in Miracles anyway is quite a it's almost like a processing sort of poem. It's almost like leaning all these things up against each other and maybe not really trying to judge them because judgment so Back, we're back to Philip Larkin. But if someone's judged the thing for you in the poem, you don't get a way in as a reader, do you? Yeah. Because it's prejudged, so your like your yeah. work has been done for you. Yeah. And I think with this poem, I just wanted to put all those things alongside each other, and show. something of that something of the oddness of the particular experience but also something of the oddness of having to decide what you believe in and or feeling like you should have to decide what you believe in which i think a lot of humans do yeah feel to some extent is it telling or does there some sort of element to it being a pre-pandemic poem that is 2019 or is that just happenstance that it was well it's happenstance because i wouldn't have been able to go if it was 2020 would i um that's a really good question because i have definitely written pandemic poems and i probably wrote a version of this poem before the pandemic happened so i don't think it has its roots in that i don't think it has I don't think it's looking back with a like knowing post-pandemic eye, but the the drafts 
the drafts changed a lot. It changed from like a series of prose poems to some to this, which is you know um, like a column on the yeah on the page, but with less weird line breaks than James Tate. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm sure he knew what he was doing. And could you say, um, as a sort of final question, or one of my final questions, how it relates to the book as a whole? I mean, you've said a bit about uh, sure. how a book, A Course in Miracles, relates to of the wider kind of themes or ideas. Yeah, yeah. That are in Space Baby. Yeah. Well, Space Baby is definitely interested in the planet, the eco, the eco apocalypse climate change our in in a kind of apocalyptic way i guess um but there's something about that relationship between the human and the natural world in a lot of the poems and there's also i guess it does the whole book does deal with some fairly expansive like ideas you know, space and deep time and the deep future and the far future and 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 the unknown, you know, the yeah. unknown in, in the same way that, you know, faith and the afterlife and, and so on are, are unknowns. And faith, little questions of faith do crop up from time to time, I think, in the book as well. There's a slightly odd poem about the possibility of like sort of... I guess it's quite a secular sort of reincarnation, but that you know, there's there's a poem with that at the centre of it, and it it comes up in an, another few places as well. There's a thing about generations in it, which I don't think is in this, but I suppose it in in a small way it is, which is a sort of a a mismatch between generations a, a generation that is maybe very angry at the older generation a generation that is putting their hopes for the future onto the younger generation and i feel like right. there are a lot of poems that have those bits I of that see, in it. Yeah, yeah that's interesting that's um, very opposite i think yeah mm, yes yeah i actually jane rogers who you worked with um and who taught me a little bit but her book the testament of jesse lamb that's which right. and that's very that's really stayed with me, the anger mm. between the younger generation who because the world is completely messed up for them, isn't it? And yeah. the older generation, the anger between those two generations really like it's a very sort of tenuous inspiration, but mm. it's always stayed with me from mm, reading well, that book. Is that feeling, yeah. Yeah. That's your scroll. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for... No worries, thank you. ...appearing on the podcast, Susanna. I hope you enjoyed it. I did enjoy it, actually. It's, it's um, actually, it's great to, like, talk about your own work for ages, isn't it, and have someone listen. Yeah, I think it's... It's good for the ego. Yeah. Thank you yeah. very much. Susanna Evans is the author of two collections of poetry, Near Future and Space Baby both published by Nine Arches Press. Her first pamphlet, Confusion Species, was a winner in the 2012 Poetry Business Competition, and her second, Green, will be published by Little Betty Press next year. She lives in Sheffield and is a creative director of Sheaf Poetry Festival. 
Susanna read James Tate's poem, Making the Best of the Holidays, from his book, Return to the City of White Donkeys, which was published by HarperCollins in 2004. To find out more about Susanna's work and explore this and other podcasts in this series, go to the website twowaypoetry.podbean.com or my website chris-jones.org.uk You can also follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at CW Jones Chris, or on Blue Sky at cwjoneschris.bsky.social for more updates on future episodes. The exit music is by William Jones. Thank mm-hmm. you.